Hey guys, it's Midweek Reading Night, and I'm going to be reading from True Ghost Stories by Harold Carrington. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, how you all doing? Happy Wednesday. Let me get adjusted here. My name is Charlotte, I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. It might take us a while, but, uh, you know, no more than one or two days, but we can get to you. In the case that it takes us a little while to get to you, we do have psychics and mediums on staff who can call you. And if what you do have going on is, in fact, paranormal, in most cases, they in most cases they can calm things down before we get out there. But like I said, it only takes us one or two days. Okay, that being said, if you're watching from Facebook tonight, and, so, and some of you are, and you haven't done so already, please hit that follow button. Always looking for followers. And d- during the show, you know, if, if you like what you hear tonight, put up a smiley face, thumbs up, or uh, let's see. If it's, I did this yesterday and got right. See? I uh, see it's ridiculous. I had it right yesterday. Just show me some love, okay? And if you're over on YouTube watch, watching this, then please uh, subscribe if you haven't done so already. Same thing. Smiley faces, happy faces, you know, thumbs up, whatever, to show us some love, okay, if you like what you hear. And uh, like I said, subscribe. There's 900 videos over on YouTube, all of this show. So you have, there's a lot to choose from because I don't always stick with ghosts and stuff. I, I do other things as well. Like last night was about food. It was about religion and food. Anyway, welcome. Um, I'm. Uh, this is not live tonight. Uh, just let you guys know up front. I've uh, been being taken out for my second birthday dinner by my by by Karen by Karen Clark, and so she's going to be taking me out to dinner tonight. So here I am. It's around two thirty p.m. Pacific right now, and I'm recording this for you. So this book has been really interesting. This true ghost stories because this the 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 uh, psych the, the cyclical research people have been had been had started this up in the eighteen hundreds and uh, looking into paranormal stuff. So these are mostly scientists and scientific type people, PhDs and psychologists that study the paranormal. And Mr. Carrington, who wrote this book, is one of those people. He is, I, I, you know, he's got a PhD. So it's interesting to read the take on ghosts and everything from way back 1800s or, or, or early 1900s era. Okay. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to read for about an hour and then I'm going to, and then that's going to be the end. And then you guys can go your merry way because tomorrow, Constance Victoria Briggs is going to be on, and she's going to be talking about moon secrets and things like that. So it should be an interesting day tomorrow, and I'll be back at the usual time. Okay, but like I said, I'm only going to read for about an hour out of this book, and uh, just bear with me because um, it's not set up like an ebook at all. It's just uh, a lot of some, you know, some of the paragraphs are all like one big giant paragraph, and so I have a tendency to lose my place sometimes when when I'm reading. So just bear with me with that. But I think you'll enjoy it. Um, the the other day when we did this and I did the read on this book, it was really cool. It was really, really a cool read. And I got good responses from it. So, uh, yeah, 
without further ado, let me uh, figure out my timing here, and away we go. Okay. So I know where I'm at. Okay, so four minutes in, which puts me at... Okay. Got it. Okay. So here we go, gang. Let me get started on this, and I hope you enjoy it. If you're at home eating dinner or you've ended your, your work day, you, you know, dim the lights, cuddle up on the couch, put your fuzzies on your feet, uh, or eat your dinner or whatever it is you do when I do these reads. Uh, some people carry me around in their pockets while they're cleaning the house, and uh, it's kind of cool. I, I, I get to be with everybody. All right? And if there is somebody in the house that you want to check the show out, feel free to ask them to do it. Just keep sharing this thing out because the more it goes out, the more, you know, it, you know, the more the merrier. All right, here we go. Uh, True Ghost Stories by, by Herbert Carrington. Carrington. I'll get the name right yet. The Ghosts of Animals, etc. I've elsewhere spoken of the apparent ability of animals to see phantasmal forms and figures. Get this over here. The reverse of this is also true. Ghosts of animals have been seen like spectral dogs, cats, horses, as well as human beings. These apparitions are very perplexing and raise the question of the immortality of animals, a very vexed question, which has given rise to much discussion. Mr. H. Ryder Haggard records the case of his own dog, whose apparition he saw at the very moment that the dog was killed by an express train some miles away. Did the animal succeed in affecting his master by, tele uh, by telepathy? If not, why the coincidence? I myself have recorded a case in which a real cat spat at the phantom dog, seen independently by a clairvoyant, who had described it a few moments before to a group of spectators. Such cases are very interesting. They tend to prove that dogs, cats, horses, and other animals also survive death, a conclusion which is certainly the most humane and logical to many minds. In addition to these animal apparitions, there are also grotesque, horrible, monstrous, and undefinable ghosts. One or two cases of this character are described in this book, Sometimes the seer sees something awful, but cannot describe it in words, you know, exactly what it is. Many of the phantoms of the imaginative type are of this character. Again, there are graveyard ghosts, banshees, gnomes, elementals, pixies, fairies, brownies, nature spirits, hobgoblins, sylphs, never heard of a sylph, salamanders, dragons, vampires, wraiths, corpse candles, corpse candles, and many other awful beings which have been described from time to time in the past. We need not consider these in a book of this, of this character, however, but to return to our argument for the objective reality of ghosts. Fifthly, we have those cases in which the apparition has produced a physical effect in the material world, snuffed a light, opened a door, pulled back the bed curtains, etc. A hallucinatory figure could not do this. It has been suggested that all, all of this is only a part of the hallucination. But when the thing is found to have been moved in reality, we must explain this somehow. For otherwise, how did it change its place? Sixthly, we have cases in which the same apparition has been seen by several separate and independent persons in the same room or house. And afterwards, they've recognized the features of this person in a photograph shown to them. The photograph of the person supposed to haunt that particular house. If we were to believe that a simple hallucination caused the figure, how do we account for this identification? Surely, the theory is really far-fetched. For all these reasons, therefore, and others, it would be possible to mention 
there is much to be said in favor of this theory of haunted houses. The theory which says that the figures seen are real, semi-material entities. The clothes of ghosts. The second view, opposed to that mentioned above, is this. Someone living in a house has experienced a hallucination, and then seen the same thing over and over again, by reason of auto-suggestion, or, if he moves away, and another tenant takes the house in turn, the thoughts of the second tenant are influenced, through thought transference, by the first tenant, who broods and thinks over his experiences in the haunted house, wonders whether the people now living in it are experiencing phenomena. In this way, the minds of those living in the house are constantly influenced by thought transference by living minds, and hallucinatory, hallucinatory figures are produced in them, just as the picture of a playing card is induced in experimental thought transference. There are two things to be said in favor of such a theory. In the first place, we have the analogy which telepathic experience gives us, in which certain visual images are undoubtedly transferred from one mind to another, and it is natural to assume that an extension of the same process might account for many of the phantasmal forms seen in haunted houses, as explained elsewhere. In the second place, we immediately surmount the difficulty presented by the ghost clothes. This is a stumbling block to many investigators. However, much as we believe that an etheric or astral event or spiritual body might continue to persist after death, it is hard to believe that the clothes of the person who died also had spiritual counterparts and returned with him to visit the earth and the scenes of former joys and miseries. We seldom read of a ghost without clothes. Nude ghosts are not the fashion. Yet, if we cannot believe this, how are we to explain this difficulty and the fact that ghosts wear ghostly garments? If the ghosts were a hallucination, we could understand all this easily enough. The clothes were imaginary, just as the figure was. They formed part of the mental image, just like the figure seen in dreams. This, how, this, therefore, is one very strong point in favor of this hypothesis. But if the ghost is a real outstanding entity, how, 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 how do we account for her clothes? Several tentative explanations have been forthcoming. In the first place, it has been suggested that all ghosts are in reality partial materializations, and that it is possible for a spirit to materialize and form drapery as well as solid flesh and bone. Both are a sort of con con condensation of matter in varying degrees. Again, it has been suggested that a spirit has the power to create objects by the power of will, by merely thinking and willing to do so. In this way, man would be a real creator in a miniature scale, and certain analogies could be found for this in the material world. The returning spirit would desire to return clothes, and this very desire would create the fitting garb. Other theories have been advanced, but the, the above are the simplest and the most intelligible, and are all we need to consider at present. All these difficulties, however, tell against the substantiality of ghosts and in favor of this second theory of haunted houses. Telepathy from the Dead 3. The third theory which has been advanced is an extension of the second. Thought transference is still the agency invoked to explain the facts, but from the minds of dead and not living persons. That is, assuming telepathy to be true and possible between living minds and assuming that the that individual consciousness survives the change called death. We can readily imagine that those who have passed over 
might affect and influence the living by thought transfers also, just as they did in life. On this theory, therefore, the ghost would still represent a hallucination, a mental or imaginary figure, and it would still be induced by telepathy from a distant mind, but that mind would be that of a so-called dead person. After death, hang on a second, see what I mean? After death, we might suppose this person would be thinking or dreaming over the past events, the scenes of his joys and sorrows, and these dreams would tend to influence the minds of those still living and cause them to see the figure seen. The figures on this theory would then be hallucinatory, but they would have a real objective basis and starting point for all that, and, as such, would represent the continued existence and activity of the part of the dead. Against this ingenious theory may be urged all those arguments which have been cited in favor of the materiality of apparitions. The psychic atmosphere. So what we're doing right now with this book is it's laying out the different theories behind ghosts. And then we're going to get into nothing but ghost stories. A fourth theory is, is that which says that some subtle psychic atmosphere is present in certain houses. And that this atmosphere affects and influences all who live within. Just as their physical atmosphere would, only in a different manner and degree. Everyone has doubtless experienced this atmosphere in certain houses if they are at all sensitive. They either like a house or dislike it for no apparent reason. Some houses rest and refresh you. Others irritate you, etc. This theory contends that every living human being is constantly giving off a peculiar vital emanation or aura or influence, and that this charges up or impregnates the material objects in the immediate neighborhood, which soak it up like a sponge and retain it after being removed from its presence. It is because of this fact that articles presented to trans mediums often recall the person to whom they belong. It is because of this that psychometry is possible. That is, the ability of some persons to give the past history of an object by merely handling it. It is because of this that certain houses become so charged with this magnetic aura, or whatever you want to call it, that they remain charged for some time, and, in discharging, create psychic disturbances and impressions which are seen and experienced as phantasmal appearances. The chief objection to this theory is that it's difficult to see how this general and impersonal charging process can create definite and clear-cut forms. Possessing all the appearances of reality, doubtless each theory contains much truth, and haunted houses represent, in many cases, a combination of all these causes working together and combining in one complex and unfortunately ill-understood un, Ill whole. It is the duty of the, of the future to disentangle this maze as, as best it can and explain the various factors which go to make up a haunted house of this character. Forms created at will. Besides these theories, another might be suggested, which has never so, which has never so far been advanced, so far as I'm aware. It is that the phantasmal forms seen in haunted houses are real, substantial creations manufactured by the thoughts or will of the discarded spirit, who fashions it out of such stuff as dreams are made of. It has been said that thoughts are things, and many believe that this is the, literally true. Certain it is that a limited number of peculiarly constructed persons can, can produce phenomena which seem to be solid creations of the will. So, if thought could ever be proved to be really creative, 
if it could only for if it could only not if it could not only formulate but objectify and project into space images and forms, we should have here a rational explanation of many ghosts as well as their behavior. And just here a few words as to this letter may not be out of place. It has often been objected that ghosts cannot be realities. They cannot be real spirits for the reason that they act in such a senseless manner. Okay? They seldom speak or reply when spoken to. They seldom have very definite purpose. In short, they betray no intelligence. This being so, they must be hallucinations and not the realities they claim to be. The answer to this objection is found in the following consideration. Even granting all this to be true, many believing in ghosts do not for an instant contend that such ghosts represent the actual person the figure symbolizes. It is a mere projection, a shell, a form created by the discarded spirit, a resemblance, a phantasm. The central consciousness which animated, which animated and still animates that person is not in the ghostly form, but elsewhere. The phantasm represents merely a sort of impersonal wraith, and, as such, cannot be expected to possess intelligence or human characteristics. None are present within it. It is a very difficult thing from a real person, from the real person, it, oh, I'm sorry, it is a very different thing from the real person it represents. The insipid, non-intelligent behavior of ghosts, therefore, is only what we should expect. This fact is no argument against the reality, when rightly understood and interpreted. Physical manifestations. Again, he's going through the steps to show you what the scientific theory is, and then we're going to be going through case the case files here. It gets warm in this room. Not as warm as the other studio, but warm. In addition to haunted houses of this type, there are others, which must be referred to very briefly. This, thus, in some cases, no figures have been seen, but remarkable sounds have been heard, sounds which have never been accounted for. Bangs, knocks, monotonous reading aloud, ha, that's me, whispering, <laughs> footsteps, etc., are some of the noises and sounds which have been heard in this way, and their origin often remains a mystery. It would take too long to discuss the various explanatory theories which have been advanced by psychic students to account for these sounds. In other types of haunted houses, physical manifestations take place, though nothing unusual is either seen or heard. Thus, in one case recorded by Lombroso, after death, what? Numbers of bottles were broken, one after the other, for no apparent cause, when he was actually looking at them. In still another case, furniture has been upset, crockery broken, doorbells rung, but no visible agency. John Wesley was persecuted in this manner for several years, and the reason was never discovered. Such cases are technically known as poltergeists, and may be found in abundance in the history of the supernatural. Can haunted houses be cured? One question of considerable interest remains. It is this. Can so-called haunted houses be cured? Many of those who live in houses of this character would like to have these influences removed, but are unable to rid themselves of them. Can this be done? In some cases, this has doubtless been accomplished, while in others, it has failed. We know too little as yet to lay down any arbitrary laws or rules which may be followed with safety in cases of this character. Sometimes one method succeeds while another fails. I have known of cases where exorcism worked a complete cure, of others in which it failed miserably. 
I have known of cases in which suggestion, rightly applied, rid the house of its ghost. In other instances, no result was produced by similar methods. In a few instances, mediums and psychics, gotta fix my chair again, have been able to assist. In others, their presence, their presence only seemed to make matters worse. We can but experiment and learn. Those who may be more interested in this aspect of the question will find it treated in chapter, in a future chapter of my book. I think it's chapter five. Oh, his own, The Coming Science, which is devoted to haunted houses and their cure. So that, this is going to be, in, in that information will be in this other book he has. Chapter two, Phantasms of the Dead. In the following chapter, I shall give a number of cases in which ghosts or phantasms of the dead as they're called, have appeared to one or more persons at one time, sometimes telling them something they did not know, sometimes moving material objects in the room, sometimes pulling the bed clothes off, etc. Nearly all these cases are well authenticated and have been narrated at first hand. Many of them have the corroboration testimony of several of the persons who also saw the phantasmal figure or in some way shared in the experience. I shall begin with a Russian ghost. The following story is vouched for by Mr. W.D. Addison of Riga and sent to him by Mr. W.T. Steed, who published it in Borderland. It was in February 1884 that the incidents I'm about to relate occurred to me, and the story is well known to my immediate friends. Five weeks previously, my wife had presented me with our first baby, and our house being a small one, I had to sleep on a bed made up in the drawing room, a spacious but cozy apartment and the last place in which one would expect ghosts to select for their wanderings. On the night in question, I retired to my couch soon after 10, and fell asleep almost the moment I was between the sheets. Instead of sleeping as, I am thankful to say, is my habit, straight through till morning, I woke up after a short dreamless sleep with a dim consciousness upon me that someone had called me by, by name. I was just turning the idea over in my mind when old doubts were solved by my hearing the name, my name pronounced in a faint whisper, Willie. 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 There we go. Now the nurse, who was in attendance on the baby, and who slept in the dressing room adjoining our bedroom, had been ill for the past few days, and on the previous evening my wife had come and asked me to assist her with the baby. As soon, therefore, as I heard this whisper, I turned around thinking, ah, it is the baby again. The room had three windows in it. The night was moonless, Yep, I gotta fix my chair. The night was moonless, but starlit. There was snow on the ground, and therefore snow light. And the blinds being up, up the room was by no means dark. See, I got lost again. Hang on a second. Okay. The first thing I noticed on turning around was the figure of a woman close to the foot of the bed, at whom, following the bed of my thoughts, I suppose it'd be my wife. What's up? I asked. But the figure remained silent and motionless, and my eyes being more accustomed to the dimness, I noticed that it had a gray-looking shawl over its head and shoulders, and that it was too short in stature to be my wife. I gazed at it silently, wondering who it could be. Apparitions and ghosts were far from my thoughts, and the, and the mistiness of the outlines of the silent figure did not strike me at the moment as it did afterwards. I again addressed it this I addressed it this time in the language of the country. What do you want? 
Again, no answer. And now it occurred to me that our servant girl sometimes walked in her sleep. And this was she. Behind the head of my bed stood a small table. And that this, okay, okay, and I reached around for the matchbox, which was on it. Never removing my eyes from the supposed ghost. The matchbox was now in my hands, but just as I was about to take a match out, the figure, to my astonishment, seemed to rise up from the floor and move backwards toward the end of the window, toward the end window. At the same time, it faded rapidly and became blurred with the gray light streaming in at the window, and ere I could not strike the match, it was gone. I lit the candle, jumped out of bed, and ran to the door. It was fastened. To the left of the drawing room, there was a uh, a bourgeois, separated only by a, by a curtain. This room was empty, too, and the door likewise fastened. I rubbed my eyes. I was puzzled. It struck me now for the first time that the figure was hazy-looking. Also, that my wife was the only person who called me Willie, and certainly the only person who could give the word its English pronunciation. I first searched both drawing room and, and the other room, and then, opening the door, stepped into the passage and went to my wife's door and listened. The baby was crying and my wife was up, so I knocked and was admitted. Knowing her to be strong-minded and not nervous, I quietly related my experience. She expressed astonishment and asked if I was not afraid to return to my bed in the drawing room. However, I was not. And after chatting for a few minutes, went back to my quarters, fastened the door, <clears throat> and getting into bed, thought the whole matter over very quietly. I could think of no explanation of the occurrence, and, feeling sleepy, blew out the light and was soon sound asleep again. After a short but sound dreamless slumber, I was again awakened, this time with my face towards the middle window. And there, close up against it, was the figure again. And owing to its pro proximity to the light, it appeared to be a very dark object. I at once reached out for the matches, but in doing so, upset the table, and down it went with my candlestick, my watch, keys, etc., making a terrific crash. As before, I kept my eyes fixed on the figure, and I now observed that, whatever it was, it was advancing straight towards me, and in another moment, retreat to the door would be cut off. It was not a comfortable idea to cope with the unknown in the dark, and in an instant, I had seized the bedclothes, and grasping a corner of them in my each hand, and holding them up before me, I charged straight at the figure. I suppose I thought that by smothering the head of my supposed assailant, I could best repel the coming attack. The next moment, I had landed on my knees in a saw on a sofa by the window, with my arms on the windowsill, and with and with the consciousness that it was now behind me, I having passed through it, with a bound face. Okay, with a bound, I faced round and was immediately immersed in a darkness impalpable to the touch, but so dense that it seemed to be weighing me down and squeezing me from all sides. I couldn't stir. The bedclothes, which I had seized, as described, hung over my left arm, but the other was free, but seemed pressed down by a, a benumbing weight. I aside to cry, I say to cry for help, but realized for the first time in my life what it means for the tongue to cleave to the roof of the mouth. My tongue seemed to have become dry and to have swelled to a thickness of some inches. It stuck to the roof of my mouth, 
and I could not ejaculate a syllable. At last, after an appalling struggle, I succeeded in uttering, and I knew that disjointed words, half prayer, half excretions of fear, left my lips. Then my mind seemed to make one frantic effort. There seemed to come a wrench like an electric shock, and my, my limbs were free. It was also as though I tore myself out of something. In a few seconds, I had reached and opened the door and was in the passage, listening to the hammerings of my heartbeats. All fear was gone from me, but I felt as though I had run miles from my life and that another ten yards of it would have killed me. I again went to the door of my wife's room and, hearing that she was up with the baby, I knocked and she opened. She is a witness to the state I was in. The drops rolling down my face, my hair was damp, and the beatings of my heart were audible, some paces off. I can offer no explanation of what I saw. But as soon as my story became known, the people who had occupied the house previously told me that they had once put a visitor in that same drawing room who had declared the room to be haunted and had refused to stay in it. Next one is Grasp by a Spirit Hand. The following account is vouched for by Major C.G. McGregor, Ireland, who writes as follows. In the end of the year 1871, I went over from Scotland to pay a short visit to a relative living in a square on the north side of Dublin. Okay. In January 1872, the husband of my relative, then in his 84th year, was seized with paralysis and, having no trained nurse, the footman and I sat up with him for 16 nights during his recovery. On the 17th night, at about 11.30 p.m., I said to the footman, The master seems so well and sleeping soundly. I shall go to bed. And if he, if he, and if he awakes worse, or you require me, call me. I then retired to my room, which was over the one occupied by the invalid. I went to bed and was soon asleep. And sometime afterwards, I was awakened by a slight push on the left shoulder. I was at the time lying on my right side, facing the door, which is on the right side of my bed, and the fireplace on the left. I stared up. I started up and said, Edward, is there anything wrong? I received no answer, but immediately received another push. I got annoyed and said, Can you not speak, Rand, and tell me if anything is wrong? Still no answer. And I had a feeling that I was going to get another push when suddenly, when I suddenly turned around and caught what I thought was a human hand, warm, soft, and plump. I said, who are you? But I got no answer. I then tried to pull the person towards me to endeavor to find out who it was. But although I am nearly 13 stone, I could not move whoever it was, but felt that I myself was likely to be drawn from the bed. I then said, I will know who you are. And having the hand tight in my hand, with my left, I felt the wrist and arm enclosed, as it seemed to me, in a tight sleeve of some winter material with a linen cuff. But when I got to the elbow, all trace of the arm ceased. I was so astonished that I let the hand go, and just then the house clock struck 2 a.m. I then thought no one could possibly get to the door without me catching them. But lo, the door was fast shut. And when I came to bed, that's when I came to bed, and another thought struck me. The fact that, when I pulled the hand, I heard no one breathing, though I myself was puffed from the strength I used. Including the mistress of the house, there were all five, fem 
They were all in five females, and I'm assured that the ham belonged to no, not one of them. When I related the adventure, the servants exclaimed, Oh, it must be the master's old Aunt Betty, an old lady who had lived for many years in the upper part of the house, occupying two rooms, and had died over fifty years ago at a great age. I afterwards learned that the room in which I felt the ham had been considered haunted, with many curious noises and peculiar incidents had occurred there, such as the bedclothes being torn off. One lady got a slap in the face from some invisible hand, and, when she lighted her candle, she saw something opaque fall, or jump off the bed. A general officer, a brother of the lady, slept there two nights, but preferred going to a hotel rather than remaining a third. He never would say why, well, you know, what he heard or saw, but always asserted the room was uncanny. I slept for months in that room afterwards and was never in the least disturbed. I never knew what nervousness was in my life and only regret that my astonishment caused me to let go of the hand before finding out the purpose of the visit. Whether it was meant for a warning or not, I may add that the old gentleman I, that the old gentleman lived three years and six months afterwards. I'm shot. The next case is well authenticated and appeared in the proceedings of the Society of Cyclical Research. Let me check something really quick, you guys. I'm just watching my time on these stories, so let me just kind of do this. Okay. Hang on one second. Okay. All right, let me get back in. Okay. Just making sure I got my time right on this. Okay. Okay, the next case is well authenticated. It appeared in the Proceedings of the Society for, for uh, Cyclical Research, SPR. After some preliminary remarks, the writer proceeds. I awoke and saw standing by my bed, between me and the chest of drawers, a figure, which, in spite of the unwanted dress, unwanted, at least to me, and of a full black beard, I at once recognized as that of my old brother officer. He had on the usual khaki coat worn by officers on service in eastern climates. His face was pale, but his bright black eyes shone as keenly as when a year and a half before, they had looked upon me as he stood with one foot on the handsome, bidding me farewell. Fully impressed for the moment that we were stationed together in Ireland or somewhere and thinking I was in my barrack room, I said, hello, P. Am I late for parade? P. looked at me steadily and replied, I'm shot. Shot? I explained. Good God. How and where? Through the lungs, replied P. And as he spoke, his right hand moved slowly to his breast until the fingers rested over the right lung. What were you doing? I asked. The general sent me forward, he answered, and the right hand left the breast to move slowly to the front, pointing over my head to the window. And at the same moment, the figure melted away. I rubbed my eyes to make sure I was not dreaming and sprang out of bed. It was then 4.10 a.m. by the clock on my mantelpiece. Two days later, news was received that he had been killed at Lang's Neck between 11 and 12 o'clock the night in question. The following is a nautical story. Heaved the lead. In the year 1664, Captain Thomas Rogers, commander of a ship called the Society, was bound on a voyage from London to Virginia, the vessel being sent light to Virginia for a loading of tobacco, carried little freight in her outward hold. One day, 
When they made an observation, the mates and officers brought their books and cast up their reckonings with the captain to see how near they were to the coast of America. They all agreed that they were a hundred leagues from the capes of Virginia. Upon these customary reckonings, the heaving and heaving and heaving the lead and, and finding no ground at a hundred fathoms, they set the watch and the captain turned in. The weather was fine. A moderate gale of wind blew from the coast so that the ship might have run about 12 or 13 leagues into the night when the captain was in his cabin. He fell asleep and slept very soundly for about three hours when he woke again and lay still till he heard his second mate turn out and relieve the watch. He then called his first mate as he was going off watch and asked him all how everything had fared. The mate answered that all was well, though the gale had freshened and they were running at a great rate. But it was, it was a fair wind and a fair clear night. The captain then went to sleep again. About an hour after, he dreamed that someone had pulled him and bade him to turn out to look abroad. He, however, lay still and went to sleep again, but was suddenly reawakened. This occurred several times, and though he knew not what was the reason, yet he found it impossible to go to sleep any more. Still, he heard the vision say, turn out and look abroad. The captain lay in this state of uneasiness nearly two hours, until finally he felt compelled to don his, his greatcoat and go on deck. All was well. It was a fine, clear night. The men saluted him, and the captain called out, How's she heading? Southwest by south, sir, answered the mate. Fair for the coast, and the wind east by north. Very good, said the captain. And he was about to return to his cabin. And as he was about to return to his cabin, something stood by him and said, Heave the lead. Upon hearing this, the captain said to the second mate, When did you heave the lead? What, what water had you? About an hour ago, sir, replied the mate. Sixty fathom. Heave again, the captain commanded. When the lead was... Uh, I mean, heave the lead. I'm sorry, not lead. When the lead was cast, they had ground at eleven fathoms. This surprised them all. But much more when, at the next cast, it came up seven fathoms. Upon this, the captain, in a fright, bid them to put the helm a lee. And about the ship. All hands ordered to back the sails, as is usually done in, many, in such cases. The proper orders being observed, the ship stayed and came about. But before the ships, before the sails filled, she had but four fathoms of a half water under her stern. Four fathoms and a half water under her stern. As soon as she filled and stood off, they had seven fathoms again, and at the next cast, eleven fathoms, and so on to twenty fathoms. Then they stood off to. Then they stood off the seaweed or seaward all the rest of the watch to get into deep water till daybreak, when, being a clear morning, the capes of Virginia were in the fair were in fair view under their stern, and but a few leagues distant. Had they stood on but one cable length further as they were going, they would have been ashore and certainly lost their ship, if not their lives all through the erroneous reckonings of the previous day. Who or what was it that waked the captain and bade him to save the ship? That has never been able to tell. The incident that follows is somewhat similar, though more dramatic, being also a nautical story. The Rescue at Sea 
following famous narrative is taken from Mr. Robert Dale Owen's collection, printed in his Footfalls of the Boundary of Another World and the Debatable Land Between This World and the Next. It is quite a famous case, and it is vouched for by Mr. Owen. It is as follows. Mr. Robert Bruce, descended from some branch of the Scottish family of the same name, was born in humble circumstances about the close of the 18th century at Torbay in the south of England, and there bred up to a seafaring life. When about 30 years of age, in the year 1828, he was first made on board a, a bark trading between Liverpool and St. John's in Brunswick. On one of her voyages bound westward, being then some of five or six weeks out, and having near the eastern portion of the banks of Newfoundland, the captain and the mate had been on deck at noon, taking an observation of the sun, after which they both descended to calculate their day's work. The cabin, a small one, was immediately at the stern of the vessel and the, and, and the short stairway, descending to it, ran all through ships. Immediately opposite to the stairway, just beyond the small square landing, was the mate's stateroom, and from that landing there were two doors, close to each other the one opening aft into the cabin, the other fronting the stairway into the stateroom. The desk in the stateroom was in the forward part of the ship, close to, close to the door, so that anyone sitting in it and looking over his shoulder could see into the cabin. The mate, absorbed in his calculation, which did not result as he expected, varying considerably from dead reckoning, had not noticed the captain's motions. When he had completed his calculations, he cried out without looking round, I make our latitude and longitude so-and-so. Can that be right? How was yours, sir? Receiving no reply, he repeated the question. Glancing over his shoulder and perceiving, as he thought, the captain, busy at his slate, still no answer. Thereupon he rose, and, as he fronted the cabin door, the figure he had mistaken for the captain raised his head and disclosed to the astonished mate the features of an entire stranger. Bruce was no coward. But as he met that fixed gaze, looking directly at him in grave silence, and became assured that it was no one whom he had ever seen before, it was too much for him, and instead of stopping to question the seeming intruder, he rushed upon deck in such evident alarm that it instantly attracted the captain's attention. Why, Mr. Bruce, said the latter, what in the world is the matter with you? The matter, sir? Who is that at your desk? No one that I know of. But there is, sir. There's a stranger there. A stranger? Why, man, you must be dreaming. You must have seen the steward there, or the second mate. Who else would venture down without orders? But, sir, he was sitting in your armchair, fronting the door, writing on your slate. Then he looked up full in my face, as if I ever saw a man plainly and distinctly in the world. I saw him. Him? Who? Heaven knows, sir. I don't. I saw a man and a man I have never seen before in my life. You must be going crazy, Mr. Bruce, a stranger, and we're nearly six weeks out. The captain descended the stairs, and the mate followed him. Nobody in the cabin. They examined the staterooms. Not a soul could be found. Well, Mr. Bruce, said the captain, did not I tell you that you had been dreaming? It's all very well to say so, sir, but if I didn't see that man writing on the slate, may I never go see home and family again. Ah, writing on the slate. And there should be there still. And the captain took it up. By heaven, he explained, here's something sure enough. Is that your writing, Mr. Bruce? 
The mate took the slate, and there, in plain, legible characters, stood the words, Steer to the Norwest. The captain sat at his desk, the slate before him, in deep thought. At last, turning the slate over, and pushing it over to Bruce, he said, Right down, steer to the Norwest. The mate complied, and the captain, comparing the two handwritings, said, Mr. Bruce, go and tell the second mate to come down here. He came, and at the captain's request, he also wrote the words. So did the steward. So in succession did every man of the crew who could write it all. But not one of the various hands resembled, in any degree, the mysterious writing. When the crew retired, the captain sat down and thought. Could anyone have been stowed away? At last he said, The ship must be searched. Order up, both, order up all hands. Every nook and corner of the vessel was thoroughly searched. Not a living soul was found. Accordingly, the captain decided to change the vessel's course according to the instructions received. A lookout was posted who shortly reported an iceberg and then, shortly after, a vessel close to it. As they approached, the captain's glass disclosed the fact that it was a dismantled ship, apparently frozen in the ice. It proved to be a vessel from Quebec, bound for Liverpool, with passengers on board. She had got entangled in the ice and finally frozen fast and had passed several weeks in a most critical situation. She was stove, her deck swept, in fact, a mere wreck, all her provisions and almost all of her water gone. Her crew and passengers had lost all hope of being saved, and their gratitude at the unexpected rescue, and what was terrific. As one of the men who had been brought away in the third boat ascended the ship's side, the mate, catching a glimpse of his face, started back in stared, stared back in consternation. It was the very face he had seen three or four hours before, looking up at him from the captain's desk. He communicated this fact to the captain. After the comfort of the passengers had been seen to, the captain turned to the stranger and said to him, I hope, sir, you will not think I am trifling with you, but I would be much obliged to you if you would write a few words on this slate and he handed him the slate with, with that side up on which the mysterious writing was not. I will do anything you ask, replied the passenger, but what shall I write? A few words are all I want. Suppose you write, steer to the northwest. The passenger, evidently puzzled, evidently puzzled to make out the motive of such a request, complied, however, with a smile. The captain took up the slate and examined it closely, then, stepping aside so as to conceal the slate, of the passenger, he turned it over and gave it to and gave it to him the other side of up. You say that this is your handwriting, said he. I need not say so, replied the replied the other, looking at it, for you saw the right on it. And this, said the captain, turning the slate over. The man looked first at one writing and then at the other, quite confounded at last. What is the meaning of this? said he. I only wrote one of these. Who wrote the other? That's more than I can tell you, sir. My mate here says you wrote it, sitting on, sitting at this desk at noon today. The captain of the wreck and the passenger looked at each other, exchanging glances of intelligence and surprise. Then the former asked the latter, Did you dream that you wrote this on the slate? No, sir, not that I remember. You spoke of dreaming, said, said the captain of the baroque. What was this gentleman... About, uh, about noon today. About noon today. Captain, rejoined the other, the captain of the wreck. 
The whole thing is most mysterious and extraordinary, and I had intended to speak to you about it as soon as we got a little quiet. This gentleman, pointing to the passenger, being much exhausted, fell into a heavy sleep, or what seemed such, sometime before noon. After an hour or more, he awoke and said to me, Captain, we shall be relieved this very day. When I asked him what the reason he had for saying so, he replied that he had dreamed that he was on board a ship and that she was coming to our rescue. He described her appearance and rig and, to the utter astonishment, when your vessel hove in sight, she corresponded exactly to his description of her. We had not put much faith in what he said, yet, still, we hoped there might be something in it, for drowning men, as you know, catch the straws. As it turned out, I cannot doubt that it was all arranged by some overruling providence. There is not a doubt, replied the captain of, of, uh, of the other ship, that the writing on the slate, let it, let it come here as it may, saved only your lives. I was steering at the time considerably south and west, and I altered my course for the northwest and had a look out had a look out aloft to see what would come of it. But you say, he added, turning to the passenger, that you did not dream of riding on a slate. No, sir. I have no recollection whatsoever of doing so. I got the impression that the Baroque I saw in my dream was coming to rescue us, but how that impression came I cannot tell. There was another strange thing about it, he added. Everything here on board seems to be quite familiar, yet I am very sure I was never in your vessel before. It's all a puzzle to me. And what did your mate see? Thereupon, Mr. Bruce related to, the, to them all the circumstances above detailed. Pretty cool. Pretty cool story. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Let me see where we're at. Okay, let me double check here again. I'm going to double check the time. Okay. I know where I'm at. All right. How ghosts influence us. The following is a very interesting case, which brings vividly before us the fact that the ghosts often draw power from those who witness their manifestations, just as they draw vitality from a materializing medium during a seance. As cases of this character are rare, the following is of considerable value. This will probably be the last one I read today. It was an afternoon last autumn, about six o'clock. I had returned from a stroll and was sitting in my own apartment on Central Park West, reading Vanity Fair while turning over its pages. I became suddenly aware of a novel of indescribable sensation. And describe, oh, sorry, <laughs> of a novel of indescribable sensation. My chest and breathing became inwardly oppressed by some ponderous weight, while I became conscious of some presence behind me, exerting a powerful influence on the forces within on trying to turn my head to see what it could be. I was powerless to do so. Neither could I lift a hand or move in any way. I was not a little alarmed and began immediately to reason. My mind was alive, though physically I was unable to move a muscle. It was as if the current of nerve force within seemed forcibly drawn together and focused on the spot in front of me. I gazed motionless, as though with something intenser than ordinary eyesight, on what was no longer vacant space. There, an oval, misty light was forming, was forming elongatory, widening, yes, actually developing into a human face and form. 
Was this hallucination or some vision of, of the unseen coming in so unexpected a fashion? Before he had arisen a remarkable figure, never. Before me, sorry, had arisen a remarkable figure, never seen before in a picture or, in a picture or life, dark skin, aged, with white beard, the expression intensely earnest. The features small, the bald head finely molded, lofty over the forehead. The whole demeanor instinct with solemn grace. He was speaking to me in deep tones, as if in urgent entreaty. What would I not give to hear words from such a figure? But no effort availed me to distinguish one articular sound. I tried to speak, but could not. With desperate effort, I shook out the words speak louder. The face grew more intent, the voice louder and more emphatic. Was there something amiss with my hearing? Then that I could not distinguish nor nor word amid these deeply emphasized tones? Slowly and deliberately, the figure vanished. Through the same stages of indistinctness, back to the globular lamp-like whiteness, till it had faded to nothingness. Before it had quite faded away, the face only of a woman arose, indistinct and dire and dim, the same emphatic hum, though in a subdued note, the same paralysis of voice and muscle, the same strange force as it was overshadowing me. With the disappearance of this second and far less interesting figure, I recovered my power of movement and arose. My first impulse was to look around for the origin of this strange force, my second to rush to the looking glass to make sure of myself. There could be no illusion. There I was, paler than usual. The forehead bathed in perspiration. I threw open the window. It was no dream. There were the passing trolley cars below, clanging up and down, while a crowd of noisy youngsters were playing in the park across the way. I sponged my face and, greatly agitated, walked hurriedly to and fro. If this is real, I thought, it may recur. I would sit in the same position, try to be calm, read a book, remain as still and passive as I could, and see the result. To my intense interest, and almost at once, the strange sense of some power operating on the nerve forces within followed the same loss of muscular power, the same wide awakens of the reason, the same drawing out of concentrating of the energies on the spot up front, in front, repeating itself, this time more deliberately, leaving me freer to take mental notes of what was happening. Again arose the noble, earnest figure gazing at me, the hands moving in solemn accompaniment to the deep tones of voice, the same effort, painful on my part, to hear with no result. The vision passed. Again, the woman's face, insignificant and meaningless, succeeding it as before. She spoke, but in less emphatic tones. It flashed upon me that I could hear, that I would hear. After a frantic effort, I caught the words, land, America, which positively no clue to their meaning. I was wide awake when the first impression occurred, and in a highly excited state of mind, on its reappearance. Okay, guys, that's it. We will be continuing on Sunday with How It Goes, Warn the King. All right. So, thank you guys for listening tonight, and I hope to see you. To I hope to see you. Oh, look at this! I shrunk, didn't I? Look at this! I shrunk every time. And I hope to see you guys all tomorrow, six thirty p.m. Pacific, when my guest will be Constance Victoria Briggs to talk about moon history and space stories. 
So uh, hopefully to see you. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Uh, just trying to get the word out like I've said in the past. So I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great rest of your evening, guys.